How do we make second hand become the first choice? Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we explore how circular, regenerative and fair solutions are better for people, planet and prosperity. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll hear from entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our monthly edition of Circular Insights. Hello and welcome to episode 102. Thanks for listening and for helping share the benefits of going circular by following the Circular Economy podcast page on LinkedIn, by reposting episode news and by adding your comments. In today's episode, I'm talking to Joe Spalton. Joe is the founder of Rummage, a brilliant online platform that makes it super easy for people to find and buy exactly what they're looking for across a wide range of second-hand marketplaces. Joe is a fine art graduate and was a professional racing sailor. Her adventures when sailing around the world opened a window showing how badly global consumption is affecting our planet. On the Rummage website, under a heading that says let's make second-hand first choice, Joe explains why she's been driven to do this, saying I wanted my children to grow up knowing that as consumers, they have a choice. Fast fashion, our disposable economy, always buying new is unsustainable. Buying secondhand means less resources being used up, less energy, less manufacturing, less shipping, less landfill. The choice is ours. Rummage.com is here to make it easy. In this episode, Jo Spalton tells us how she came up with the idea for Rummage and shares some of the challenges of starting up, including creating a basic test product, getting clear on what customers really want and the difficulties of securing funding. Jo talks us through her insights on customer trends and how people are moving away from ownership and towards renting, sharing and subscriptions. Let's go to the interview and hear Joe Spalton telling us more about Rummage, and I'll be back afterwards to share my takeaways. So Rummage is really simple. It aggregates all secondhand websites all into one place. Uh, so essentially, um, we connect to all of our partner sites that we're working with at the moment. And with one search on Rummage, um, you get one list of results from everywhere because we discovered that actually as many people as um uh, increasingly more people are interested in buying secondhand for various reasons, but actually there are so many places to go. In the UK, there are over 300 um, independent websites and retailers digitally online and gazillions, over three and a half thousand, not quite gazillions, but a lot um, uh, on bricks and mortar. And it's very difficult to find what you need really quickly. So the idea is that you type it in once we give you one set of results. Uh, with those results, you can then um, filter them by location, price, you can favorite items and you can set up alerts. Um, and essentially what that does, the whole aim of Rummage is to make it really quick to be successful. 
because if you're successful, you will then repeat the habit. And if you repeat the habit, you're basically building a world where we are not littering the planet with the remains of our overconsumption of new. Mm, that's brilliant. And after we'd had our conversation uh, a couple of months ago, I decided to go and try a rummage for myself and was successful in finding a, uh, a Patagonia top that I'd been after. So I can testify that it was super easy and, uh, and very successful. <laughs> So, yeah. So let's step back a bit. How on earth did you end up starting Rummage? Um, well, I'm not your um, I don't have a conventional backstory, I don't think at all, to being an entrepreneur. Um, so I originally started out life as an artist. Um, I've always liked creating things. Um, I went to St. Martin's in London, did a degree. Um, but tied in very diff discordantly to that, um, I also, I come from the south coast of England and I sailed as a child and I loved sailing and I ended up um, for a while racing yachts professionally. So I did a couple of round the world races and it was there where I literally saw floating in the oceans and washed up, littering up the harbours, um, the debris and the results of um, waste, which is essentially the results of all of our overconsumption and overproduction of things for everybody to buy around the world. Um, and it was it was that really that didn't distill into something that I could action on until later down my journey of life, um, I had children. Um, and then having children, I realized that actually everyone was right and I was wrong. You can't weld with two kids under two. You have to, you know, you have to look after them first. They don't make baby welding goggles. Um, so I parked the art for a while. I obviously wasn't sailing around the world for a living anymore. Um, and I did, I have to confess, I got a little bit bored. Um, and it was then that I decided to um, make a children's website that was very focused around um, keeping things in circulation and connecting those that had with those that didn't have as much and enabling people to find what they needed really locally and very quickly. Um, and it was about saving people money essentially at the time. Um, and then while we were building that product, I realized, oh, it'd be great. We can set up an alert service. And then I thought, oh, well, why isn't there an alert service set up for every secondhand website? That is really useful. Um, so after a while, we decided to park Outgrown It, my first kids website. And then we pivoted and then um, Rummage was born. So, yeah, a really great minimum viable product to begin with, kind of keeping it keeping it simple and solving local problems and then learning from that and really realizing how many different directions you could jump off in. So I'm interested in knowing more about the challenges of getting rummage going um, and the frustrations of of trying to start a, a tech, um, you know, a, a startup but but also something where you needed to interact with other companies because it's not just a kind of a solo website is it you have to have um good relations with the likes of ebay vinted and so on yeah no it's been a real journey i have to say um and not having um uh, a conventional career path leading up to this moment <clears throat> has proved rather challenging i have to say but um i guess the the real, the real um, early part of the journey was, it still is very exciting, but essentially starting a business from literally the ground up takes an awful lot of effort. And if you've not done the journey before, there's an awful lot of learning that needs to go on. 
Um, so the first challenges I had, um, I found a co-founder very early on who was everything about marketing that I I am not, which is great. And obviously that's key to growing a business, um, developing brand awareness, learning, learning how to present and build relationships with other businesses. That was really important. Um, but ridiculously, one of the early um, problems we had uh, going out looking for money very right at the very beginning um, was that uh, I felt I wasn't believed. So I was a middle-aged mother um, of two children. I lived in Dorset. I didn't live in London. I didn't have a tech background. It was really hard to get anyone to believe me that uh, this was, one, a really great idea, uh, despite the fact that no one was actually really doing it yet. And I think that, bizarrely, was the problem the pushback we had early on was that everyone said, well, if it's a great idea, why isn't somebody doing it already? So the fact that we were bringing it to the table um, didn't seem relevant at the beginning. Um, but we pushed through and eventually we did. We realized we needed an MVP, so a minimum viable product. Um, and Sam and I um, set off and we found our co-founder. We advertised on a couple of sites and we actually interviewed people from all over Europe and America. And oddly, we ended up getting our fantastic co-founder, technical chap uh, called Stephen, who lives in the South Coast, lives in Dorset as well. Um, and he built the very first um, platform himself, code wrote it, um, because it's super complicated in the back end, as generally everything that is front end, really obvious and very simple. Behind the scenes, the actual execution of this really great idea is complicated. Um, and he is an amazing digital architect. So he built the first um, product with which we went to go and raise our first round of investment with. Mm, brilliant. And it, it, yeah, it's been, a, it's been an exciting journey. And the learnings along the way are, you know, everything from learning how to um, write and present a pitch deck, financial forecasts. None of this was covered in my art degree. <laughs> I can imagine. and it, But it sounds like, you know, a fantastic bit of serendipity to find just the just the right co-founder and for him to be local as well. So something something good must be happening in the in the background to kind of bring all this together. So once you got started, how did things evolve from there? Well, um, once we'd built the MVP, really the next um, the next uh, challenge was to to go and connect to businesses, um, ones that weren't open. They weren't open for business, as in they weren't connected to an affiliate platform. Um, you know, an early pushback we had from people right at the beginning, um, in potential investors, was, uh, you know, why would businesses want to come and share their data with you? You know, what is it in what's in it for them? Why would they connect you? You know, essentially, you are small and insignificant and nobody knows that you're providing a service that is going to be necessary yet because it's not out there. Um, and so that whole journey of going and connecting to and selling ourselves to partners um, was a really exciting time. Um, and it was quite hard. But over the last um Certainly over the last year, as we've um, accelerated our growth and really established ourselves at the table now, <clears throat> one thing I've noticed, which is great and it is exciting, is that companies that um, originally were reluctant to talk to us, understandably, we were small, brand new, very insignificant. They now, uh, we're now having conversations with them. They want to partner. You know, the world of um, 
um, uh, connections and how to grow your business is very different now than it was five years ago. Um, because I think people understand now that synergies and growing together and building a relationship where you both can benefit and both can grow for the benefit of the greater good is the way to really make change in the world. And building partnerships rather than clients is ultimately what Rummage is all about. Mm. Partnerships with businesses, partnerships with companies that are doing something that is also beneficial to the planet, but maybe not directly um, ingestible to the rummage platform, but we also want to help promote as well. So we can show users everything there is to learn about being greener in the world with your consumption choices and how to tread more lightly on the planet. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I do think there's an increasing awareness of the benefits of collaboration across businesses and organisations are starting to see that they're part of, and I don't like using the word, but part of a kind of business ecosystem with players in in similar sectors or in opposite sectors. You know, if you're selling coffee at a, at a cafe, you've got the waste grounds, they could go into four or five different sectors. And the more connected you are and the more open you are to new ideas about who you could work with, who you could get things from, give things to, it, it just makes for a more resilient business doesn't it because now you've got multiple connections partners supporters and so on um and i guess also companies like ebay and the and the big players can now be confident in the knowledge that even though the customer might start at your website um and still want to range across the you know all the resellers if they're providing a really good customer experience then even though next time the customer might still start on rummage because they want to see the selection of what's out there. Yeah, they don't. I mean, and, and the other thing to say is that actually, you know, um, in terms of partnering and why would companies want to come and join something like rummage is because uh, for the big players, obviously they have their audience established, but actually as the marketplace has got more crowded over the last couple of years, there are more and more companies coming into this space and it's a really busy sector now. There are new companies and new brands emerging almost weekly with different business models all geared around the circular economy of stuff um, and reuse, reselling and retention of value in items monetarily and physically in terms of um, resources. And so eBay is and other bigger sites are constantly faced with the challenge of losing users to new sites new experiences mm. and for a user it's actually exciting to think that there are loads of different opportunities where you could go and find um, the phone of your dreams albeit secondhand um, but actually there are literally so many places to go where would you even know where to start mm. and so for the younger brands it's exciting because we can put them in a set of results where they are lined up absolutely adjacent to the eBay's of this world. So everyone gets a similar, you know, an equal amount of visibility. And I think that's important because it means that value retention can be spread around. So little companies can also have some share of the economic value in our community of circulation of circulation of things. I think it's really key to making the economics of the circular economy work. It's got to work for everyone, mm. not just the big players. 
absolutely. And that's a really interesting point that some of the specialists that might just be reselling, I don't know, um, secondhand watches or something that's really niche, who would never be found by most potential customers, suddenly if they're connected to rummage, they pop up alongside um, eBay or you know what whatever else is is out there already and and it allows the small companies to really get in front of the people who want that specific thing um so yeah it's it's uh, it, it's just all evolving so fast isn't it so thinking back about the big challenges are there any any big ones that have taken you a um you know a long time to solve perhaps in terms of the technical aspects or yeah, the biggest challenge really actually um, is dealing with the data. So um, obviously when you start to collect and aggregate information from, I mean, we're currently connected to 27, 28 sites. Um, as we grow and expand, the amount of items that we have in our database obviously is enormous. And the way that we connect, we're trying to connect so that we have live results coming in every day, sometimes several times a day, um, because our mission is, to really to enable people to be successful. They have to be at the front of the queue. They've got to know what's happening constantly on every site that we're related to. So managing the data is one thing. Finding and extracting relevant information is um, uh, in a timely fashion, really fast, uh, is also a big challenge as that database moves hourly occasionally. So it's a very difficult thing to do technically. Um, and also onboarding um, information from sites that have a different categorization, a different taxonomy of items is hard because um, we obviously want to make our user journey easy. So if you want to go and find something and it's in a book section, you know, and you type in Ken Follett, you need to find that. You don't want to go and find a T-shirt with it on. Um, so categorization and mapping um, all the different information that we have to make it simpler for our user at the front end is proven really tricky. And we are um, at the mercy of our partner sites because they don't need to inform us when they change what they do on their site. So we have to set up warning signs and alerts and things in the background of us to let us know when things just aren't quite right and we need to nip that in the bud and go and change it quickly. So actually it's... Um, it's far more complicated than I thought when I originally started, as things generally would be. <laughs> but mm. it, it's great because, you know, technology is moving really fast and uh, machine learning is um, really gathering pace. Now, it has been there for a while, but machine learning is totally geared towards managing huge volumes of data, which is what we're all about. So as we move forwards, leveraging that capability to use tech to improve the experience and the sort of fluidity of movement of items through our service is going to be key. Mm. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And, um, you know, when you started explaining that, I was thinking about the interviews I've done with Reaply Flow 2 and Excess Materials Exchange, and they act as kind of translation engines between businesses to allow them to, to exchange resources, materials, um, buildings, whatever. Um, but that's a bit simpler, isn't it? Because you've kind of got collaborative partners there, both sharing their individual ways of cataloguing things. But now you're a bit more in the dark. And I guess it's a kind of a different way of using machine learning in that you want the algorithm to shout 
when it gets something that it's that doesn't quite fit because that could alert you to the fact that somebody's changed their categorization and now this is in there what you don't want it to do is just kind of think oh here's a new thing i'll i'll include that in the, in the bigger bundle of <laughs> of what's there so even writing the coding for the machine learning to do what you need it to do um is is tricky yeah, yeah. Relevancy is key, obviously, to having a great search experience right at the very beginning. <laughs> we had this funny story where no matter what Sam searched for, she was always looking for a rocking horse. That was her test test item to look for. Um, she kept getting served chickens, chickens and caravans. No idea how that worked. But so we've a bit of a standing joke that if things go wrong, there's a chicken going to walk in shortly. <laughs> Yeah, gosh, that that could set you off on a, you know, I'll be thinking about that on my next dog walk. <laughs> what on earth could the connection be? <laughs> so, and just to unpack the commercials a bit, because obviously if this is a collaborative enterprise, you know, and you're trying to build up a an ecosystem of, of partners, then it has to work both for the resale platforms and Rummage itself, as well as for the um, you know, the customer buying the stuff. So how do the commercials work on, on the transactions? Yeah, no, good question. Um, so we um, we operate, um, so we monetize our users from our side um, and we operate a very standard um, affiliate relationship uh, on a commission of a sale. So if somebody comes through us, we send them to our partner site, they're tagged. And um, if they make that purchase within 30 days, then we get a percentage of the sale, which is great. Um, we also um, can now monetize users who browse and we have a subscription service coming up later this year, um, which is serving the younger generations um, because they're very much in favor of thrifting and a vintage way of living. So it's really important that that's the generation that's going to carry this forwards, this movement and this choice of lifestyle. So it's really key to listen to what they want and how they want to access this huge space. Um, they very clearly stated in a couple of surveys, ThreadUps being um, the big one, I think three quarters of them said that the millennials and Gen Zs that they would do more in this space if it was made easier. So um, a subscription service for them is coming from us later this year. But from a partner's point of view, um, we, uh, we're obviously sending users not just to their site, but specifically to an item that someone has already chosen. So we're delivering them a user very much in a state of need, very far down their sales funnel, which is great. So we're delivering it very efficiently to their door, actually. And then it's up to them to convert. But the goal is that we send users really swiftly to somewhere where they will be successful. So it's a win-win, essentially. Mm. Yeah. So just to understand that a bit better and to kind of clarify it, the end user doesn't pay any more for buying through your site it's the affiliate links from the likes of eBay and so on that go back to fund your business. But the, the user looking for the Patagonia jacket, whatever it is, pays the same buying it via rummage as they would do buying it via vented eBay. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. It's um it's a really key um a key per point to our purpose is to make this service free for everyone to use. Mm -hmm. There will be as we go forward um, different levels, um, different access points. 
um, different annexed sections. But ultimately, the search service, the basic tool is going to be free because we firmly believe if we don't make it easy for people to find what they want, they're not going to adopt this as a choice. Mm. Um, so it really is um, a huge part of our motivation for banging our heads against the wall every day sometimes. <laughs> And are you able to say a bit more about the upcoming subscription service, you know, how, how that would work? Yeah, yeah, no. Um, so the younger generation um, really are time savvy when it comes to their shopping habits and they're becoming increasingly keen on having life delivered to their door. Um, they really enjoy the fact that um, products and experiences are personalised to them and they're very bespoke to their choices their actions, their desires. So we're going to be delivering a concierge service whereby we can give people um, a more accurate set of results based on their previous behaviour. So they would kind of be able to customise their particular yeah, preferences? Absolutely. Or, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So it becomes a more tailored service. And, you know, shortening the shortening the sort of the um the search and the, the discovery journey is what we do currently shortening the choosing is what we're going to be looking at doing later as we go forwards mm. it's it's common in um it's very common user experience in new buying things new you know people who've bought this also bought that mm. based on your past experiences we think you'd like a jumper in blue in this style so you know people have got used to that but at the moment the second hand environment is still feels a little bit um, scrappy can feel a bit thrifty you literally do have to rummage excuse the pun through a lot of sites to find what you want so if we can literally have a, um, a personal shopper saying, actually, I think this suits you perfectly and this would be great for the party, then that's going to be that's the experience everyone wants. And it's what's going to make it much more fun to do, much, much nicer to participate in. Yeah, that's I think that could be absolutely groundbreaking. I mean, it's one of those things, isn't it, that when you're looking on a website, although some retailers and I, um, I'm wondering if. Bowdoin might do this kind of um, for separates things that go with if you've chosen a certain color top things that go with that as opposed to look like they might go with it color wise but then they arrive and it's just not quite right so there's <laughs> that that aspect isn't there of being able to say um, you know these are the colors that I that I really like and maybe choose from swatches so that it's an exact you know it's this this blue not that blue yeah, um, and yeah, then yeah, that it's... would that would really cut down the search. And then to say what kind of style, you know, yes, you might you might want vintage, but it's these you know these kind of designers or whatever. And for me, the bit that um, annoys me about my eBay searching is every single time I have to go in and say, I just want sellers either from the UK if it's a bulky thing, or from the Europe the European continent. Um, you know, I'm not interested in trying to transact and and end up with air miles of something coming from the US but every single time I have to go in and why can't I just set that as a as a rule so those yeah. kind of things you know to, to cut down on the carbon footprint of the shipping and and all the other stuff yeah um, no absolutely absolutely and obviously as we become um, wider and our partnerships uh, grow um, there'll be more local opportunities as well um, that's another really important thing to consider which you've brilliantly just brought up which is that uh, if you buy a pair of jeans, say, secondhand, let's stick with the clothing, uh, that's great. 
you've saved potentially 7,000 litres of water from that's what it costs in terms of resources to make a pair of jeans, then uh, that's amazing. But if you then buy it from Nottingham and it's got to be driven in a vehicle in postage and packing all the way down to Dorset, then that's not particularly green. So ultimately, there is a lot more in your local area than you would give account for. And by connecting all the services into one place, um, people in your town might be using um, Olio or Nextdoor, but you're not going to be on all of those apps to know. So there is an enormous opportunity to completely reduce the carbon footprint of your secondhand items as well, if you know where they all are. Mm. So, you know, that whole journey of about um, postage and packaging, you know, it's expensive. Quite rightly, it should be because we're employing people and vehicles to drive around the country to deliver it. If we can make it really hyper-local by connecting everything, you're not cutting anyone out of the equation. All the other businesses can still survive and thrive. Users get a great choice and they will be able to pick it up when they go and collect the kids from school or get their, you know, get their friend to pick it up when she goes to work, if you know it's where she works, you know. Those opportunities going forward, I think, are really exciting because it's about connecting communities again where they could become slightly dispersed. The digital world of resale is fantastic because you do have a huge amount of choice. It offers up the capability to retain all sorts of items that would otherwise have been discarded from brands that have, you know, got um, returns that are damaged and they can't do anything with to um, high-end items or just stuff that needs to be given away for free. It's not worth selling. But if you can put all that into a local um, a local package, then you're really looking at making some actual impact and still having fun and being a human and shopping because everyone likes to go shopping and buy stuff and change their wardrobe, refit out a bedroom, whatever it is. But, you know, you need to try and do it a little bit more impactfully. <laughs> mm. Yeah, the, the whole thing around the filtering and the, and the kind of concierge thing sounds really exciting and could go in all sorts of different directions, couldn't it, where you could have your own preferences and then, you know, if, if you're not getting what you want, you can change one filter to another and, you know, see what, see what comes up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, really exciting. So what about other future plans? I'm guessing from the conversation so far and the number of things that you've, you know, directions that you've gone in and the way that it's evolved that there are some um, other exciting ideas in the pipeline. Yeah, we've got quite a lot on our roadmap, actually. But I think in general, to take a direction rather than a specific thing, I think that um, connecting rental and sharing options um, is going to be key. And that's very different to um, consuming in a normal ownership fashion, um, because that does involve, at its best, being quite local. Mm-hmm. Um, and this hyper-localization is something that I find fascinating. Um, and I think uh, the number of companies that are coming to the market now with swapping uh, loan and for rent and for free are, are huge. Um, and I think that that is, it's an exploding sector currently in all segments. So um, mobile phones, I've rented a mobile phone. It's much cheaper. I've rented a refurbished mobile phone. Now, I don't think it gets better than that, to be honest. Um, and um, I think that it's the way forward. And I think the sharing economy is going to be big. It's starting to take a toehold, but I think it's going to take a while. But I think that's the way, that's the direction we're going to be moving in. So trying to connect those opportunities together as well 
is going to be really looking forwards into how we how we operate in the world as a human, how we interact with things. Um, I think that's re- it's fascinating watching that explode. Mm. And I'm really hoping it does explode because it could make a, such a massive difference, you know, getting more use out of underutilised objects mm. beyond the, you know, the standard examples of the power drill and the car and so on. But I think I read some research from one of the uh, consumer marketing, uh, you know, the kind of consumer trends organisations a while ago, and they were looking forward to 2030 and, you know, what would be important to people. And one of the elements that was really interesting was that, you know, the affordability of housing is so much more difficult, not just in the UK, but worldwide. So people would be living in smaller spaces and in shared spaces. And that meant that you just didn't have room for so much stuff. So, you know, people want to be able to borrow things when they need them, not buy something, you know, I don't know, a barbecue or whatever, and then think, where on earth am I going to put this for the rest of the year? (laughs) So all those kind of things could really take off as a way of enabling people to have, um, you know, fun and useful things when they need them. Yeah, absolutely. It's a much more, it's a very different way to look at living in a community, a bit more of a cooperative um, attitude to life in general. And actually having things and sharing out who owns what in a street or a community is brilliant because it means that everyone um, gets to save on space, spend less, and some people might be able to monetize what they already own. And in the current cost of living crisis, renting some things out that you've got sitting in the back of a cupboard is brilliant. And it does genuinely give everyone a bit of a helping hand. Um, I was going through our house the other day thinking, well, could I rent? I don't know. And I've got a fantastic, um, beautiful digital camera, an old an old fashioned camera, digital SLR. And uh, I was thinking, well, nobody uses those anymore. That are wrong. Loads of Mm. people are interested. You know, you have to be brave to rent out your favorite toy. But actually, it's a good thing to do. And I think that um, I think that's going to be embraced more as we go forward for many reasons. Yeah, definitely. And obviously, the platform is the key to enabling that trust to start to, you know, to take place in the first place and then to build based on feedback and experiences and and so on yeah Um, yeah i mean people who go away on holidays trust is something is a is a part of being human that is very easy to um to remove with current experiences um of sort of digital nightmares and bank accounts being hacked into and things we get rid of our trust quite quickly but actually oddly we are quite good at returning it because um trusted house sitters for example People give their house to a, almost a perfect stranger and go away on holiday. Now, if you can do that, you can definitely rent out your camera. <laughs> yeah, good point. That's a really good analogy. Thank you. So, Joe, over the course of building the business, what surprised you the most? Um, what surprised me? That What surprised me is just how how hard it's been to get going, how hard it's been talking of trust to get people to trust me that I can make this happen, that we can get this to work and it will work, that we can build the business. Um, I think that's been a really interesting learning curve from my point of view. Um, Technically, there are always, you know, lots of surprising challenges along the way. Um, But on a personal note, I think 
that's that's been fascinating and then how you how you learn from these um how you learn from what's happening how you learn from the feedback that you get the strengths the weaknesses that you identify and how you build on those and build your team to take it forwards you know and ultimately it's a team effort in in you know it's very much a team effort um, and recognizing quite quickly that you need many talents and how many hats you have to wear as a founder <laughs> is huge to be honest i'm looking forward to growing into the next stage where i can hand some of my hats on i quite like to wear fewer less hats over the next year <laughs> well at least you know you'll be able to put them all on display on rummage and <laughs> <laughs> i can rent them out <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so when you talk to other entrepreneurs particularly those that want to start something circular what bit of advice do you tend to give them? Um, be prepared to tread the fine line between uh, listening to advice and feedback, of which you will have absolutely masses, um, but also staying true to your dream and your vision. Um, there is a point where you have to onboard and listen very carefully and distill what people are telling you, but try not to get too knocked off course. It's a, it's a fine line to learn to learn and iterate on your product and tweak it. Um, learn from other people's journeys, definitely learn from other people's journeys. So as many webinars and podcasts and um, interviews that you can read about mistakes that other people have made, do it because it's a, a lot quicker than it is learning yourself the hard way. <laughs> mm. Yeah, there's a, there's a good quote from, I think he's in education, but that the, you know, the most successful in the next century will be those who can learn, unlearn and relearn. Yes, that's perfect. That just about sums it up. <laughs> so yeah, Alvin, Alvin Toffler, I can, I can send you the link afterwards if you want to use it. And Joe, if you could wave um, a magic wand and change one thing to help create a better world, what would that be? Uh, <laughs> I'd like to remove the need for everything to have a monetary value is that would be my magic wand wave. Um, I think that, you know, everything that's considered worthwhile and valuable is all based on money. And we need to find a different way of defining wealth, what it is, and disconnect it from the manufacturing and global movement of things around the planet. I don't know how we do it, but that would be my wand. Yeah, I like, I like the sound of that. That could be a good thought experiment. And is there someone you would recommend as a future guest for the programme? Yes, there is. Um, she's fantastic. Uh, she's called Jennifer Matheson and her site is called Kidsy. And it's very much where I started my circular journey in the children's sector. Um, and it's somewhere that I really believe needs to be, um, needs all the attention it could get because having children for some people is almost a rite of passage, but it is hard. It's, it's expensive potentially. And I think anything that can ease the journey of those early years when they're, you know, constantly growing out of stuff and everything changes regularly is a brilliant, is a brilliant thing to do. Um, and she is, she's great. She's got a different view on it. So yes, talk to Jennifer. Excellent. Thank you. I'll look her up afterwards. And lastly, how can people find out more and get in touch with you and the Rummage team? Uh, well, you can have a look on our website, rummage.com, uh, 1M, so Rumage, if you wanted to sound French. Um, and our Twitter and Instagram handles are um, at GoRummage. Very simple. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what 
what comes next and I think the subscription service and the, the idea of the concierge sounds fascinating so I'm keen to see what happens with that and very impressed with the journey so far I think it's I think it's amazing um, you know what you've done and, and how many sites you've managed to connect to and it really feels like a game-changing um, business of the future so thanks very much Joe for taking the time to talk us through it thanks very much for having me it's been great Rummage is another great example of digital technology as an enabler for circularity. Rummage is powering up the potential of connecting those who need something with those who have it. By grouping together the information from second-hand websites, Rummage increases the chances of finding what you want and reduces your time and effort, overcoming the stickiness factor that holds people back. It's always interesting to hear how entrepreneurs get started and how they develop something quick and cheap to test their ideas. In startup language, a minimum viable product, or MVP. Joe's first development was the locally focused website to keep things in circulation. And she used that to understand more about what people needed and how an alert system could make it easier to meet those needs. To use another word from the startup community, Joe then pivoted to focus on those alerts and get started on the next minimum viable product. Hearing Joe talk about building the Rummage team reminded me of a popular business book from the 1980s, The E-Myth, E for Entrepreneurs, which says that every successful small business needs three characters or capabilities, an entrepreneur, a manager and a technician. Some people might be able to take on two of those roles, but hardly anyone can do all three. I've put a link to the book and its key ideas in the show notes. The Rummage team had to work out how they could create value for all their stakeholders and knew it was essential for the proposition to be attractive for existing resale platforms as well as the Rummage customers. It was interesting to hear how machine learning is playing an important role in helping manage and interrogate the huge volumes of data. I mentioned the podcast episodes with Reaply, Flow2 and Access Materials Exchange, and I've put a link to those in the show notes. When you're looking for podcast episodes on a particular theme, in a specific market sector, or you want a quick way to see what's available, don't forget there's an online index spreadsheet to help you find what you want. Joe's research on what people want next was fascinating. Younger people, especially, are seeing secondhand and resale as normal and fun, and they're happy to pay for services, making it easier for them to find exactly what they're looking for. People are also more aware of the impact of their shopping decisions and the benefits of supporting local where possible. Younger people want to feel they're creating a more sustainable, inclusive, fairer world, and they want choices that align with those values. You've probably noticed that rental subscriptions and sharing are taking off, as more of us see the benefits of flexible, affordable access and want to avoid the burden and hidden costs of ownership. Platforms can unlock the problems of transacting with people or businesses that you don't know, to foster the conditions for trust care and responsibility, and to answer questions like, is this what it says it is? Will that person care for my stuff? 
digital solutions are opening the floodgates to a circular sharing economy. To quote someone from Google, waste is just a data problem. So there you go, another episode of the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you to Jo Spalton, our creative and inspiring guest, for sharing her story with us. You can find out more about Jo Spalton and Rummage at rummage.com. And that's Rummage with one M, R-U-M-A-G-E. You can follow Rummage on social media and check out all the other links we mentioned in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. I believe we can all help make the circular economy happen through the choices we make at work and in our everyday lives. Buying pre-used, keeping what we have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. Those choices send strong signals to companies and governments, making it clear we all want a better, circular and regenerative future. We can all help spread the word too. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Email a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and we'll give you a shout out on the show. We've made it easier for you to find episodes on the key circular economy strategies or for a market sector or specific countries. Check out our interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at circulareconomypodcast.com and every episode includes an interview transcript. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, then please check out episode one, episode two and episode 101. You could also buy a copy of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. The book takes you through the concepts and the practicalities with hundreds of real examples from all around the world. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you succeed with circular. You can find information on our talks, workshops, coaching and advice and circular economy resources at rethinkglobal.info or connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. <music>